Would you open up your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3? We'll be reading from verse 20 through verse 35. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to find a Bible from in front of you. And you can find Mark, chapter 3, on page 838. So let's continue to worship this morning as we hear the word of God, as we hear it read, and as we hear it preached. So starting in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do indeed rejoice in your word. It is good for us. And we come to you this morning confessing. We come admitting who we are. We are a people of mere flesh. We're here for the moment and gone in the next. We are like grass that withers. And so we we freely admit we cannot do the things that are needed. We desire life. We desire nourishment. We desire encouragement. We desire sin to be put to death. We desire to live to righteousness. And we cannot do this on our own unless you act. So we come. We seek your face, O God. Would you meet us now in the preaching of your word? And would you do your work? Would you have your way? Would you hold sway over our hearts? Would you change our affections? Would you show us the glory of your Son? Would you push into our hearts the good news of the gospel? The kingdom has come. Victory has been won. The saving reign of God is here. Now, Father, we pray that you would teach us to live in this kingdom. 
You would teach us to live as subjects who have been freed from the tyranny of Satan. Would you teach us to live in your family as the siblings of the Lord Jesus and as your sons and daughters? Would you teach us, we pray. So Father, we ask that you would you would powerfully use your word this morning. That your word would be coupled with the Spirit and penetrate our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So I want to set up our text this morning by, by telling a story. A story that stretches from the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, all the way to the middle part of the Bible, the prophets. So telling the story of the Old Testament essentially. So we can go to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And after the entrance of sin into the world in Genesis chapter 3, we see that there is a war between two rivals, or we could say more precisely, a war between two kingdoms. The seed of the gospel is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and this, this text keys us into the, the war between these two kingdoms. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. Enmity, warfare, bruising. And as we survey the scriptures, we see that in fact real wars take place throughout the Old Testament. There is real enmity between two kingdoms. We fast forward from the book of Genesis into the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, enslaves the family of promise. And even more, Pharaoh graphically seeks to exterminate the offspring of the woman by ordering infanticide. But we hear that the Lord graciously saves his people. He comes to their aid. The Lord triumphs over Pharaoh and his chariots in the sea. And Israel learns to praise their God. And they learn this song in Exodus chapter 15. And note this line in verse 3. Israel sings, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And as we continue on in the scriptures, it becomes clear that the Exodus is not the end of all wars. This is not the decisive event where the, the head of the serpent is bruised. But the enmity in Genesis 3.15 continues on. In fact, we could say the Exodus is a war that creates many more wars. War multiplies because of the Exodus. When Israel finally enters into the land of promise, they must make holy war against a bunch of people. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives this list. He says the, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the, the Jebusites. Enmity. And the good news in the midst of this conflict between these kingdoms that is that Israel is not alone in this great warfare, but the Lord, the commander of armies, is going to fight for them and fight with them and give them victory. But as we continue on reading through the book of Joshua and Judges, this holy war that begins in the conquest never finds a, a terminal point. War and enmity never leave the storyline of the Old Testament. There is always a foe. There is always a threat. There is always a nation seeking to disturb and displace the offspring of the woman. And any peace we find in the pages of the Old Testament is only 
temporary. Any prosperity that we find is, is there for a moment and then gone in the next. So we can fast forward from, from the conquest to the age of the kings. Saul and David are constantly at war against the Philistines and the Amalekites. Blood, sweat, and suffering marks the kingship of Israel. And David praises God in Psalm 144 for this. He sings, You, O God, have trained my hands for war and my fingers for battle. But there's a, there's a great hiccup in this storyline. We know this. When one turns to the preaching of the prophets, we find that Israel is not always on the winning side of these wars. We find that Israel is not always brave or valiant in battle. In fact, as the story goes on, it becomes increasingly hard to tell the difference between Israel and the kingdoms of the world. They share the same gods. They practice the same abominations. They're committing the same sins. And so Israel's trouble, their sin, reaches a breaking point. And because of their sin, the Lord casts them out from the land of promise. The Lord removes his protective hand from his chosen people, and he hands them over. He gives them over to their enemies. And once again, just like in the book of Exodus, Israel is enslaved in a land. And we can ask, what happened to the promise of Genesis 3.15? Does the story end with the serpent having the upper hand over the offspring of the woman? Will the offspring of the woman end in defeat? Well, Genesis 3.15 is God's word and God never lies. The serpent will be defeated. The offspring of the woman will find victory. And as the curtains of the Old Testament begin to close, we hear the words of promise. God renews his promise in Genesis 3.15. The God who triumphed over Pharaoh, the God who was praised, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord who who fought for Israel in the conquest, the God who trained David's hands for war and battle will return and fight for his people. And so the prophet Isaiah begins to preach good news to a people who are enslaved, a people who are held captive by the mighty and the strong and the tyrants. And so Isaiah says this to Israel in chapter 40, verse 10 of his book. He says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And he says two chapters later in chapter 42, verse 13, The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. A mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal as if he is beating his breasts. And Isaiah declares the sure and certain news to this enslaved people that the warrior God will come and no one will stand in his way. He will win a victory for his people. Israel hears the preaching of Isaiah and they begin to doubt. Oh, we have the book of Exodus. We We read about what Yahweh did for our forefathers. We have the book of Joshua, and we we know how the Lord fought for the people and pushed out the ites from the land, but but can this Lord save us once again? Is the God of the Exodus still mighty? Is the God of the conquest still able to save? Is he strong? Can he really act in that way again? Isaiah chapter 49, verse 24, channels all of these doubts into one precise thought. 
Isaiah writes, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captive of a tyrant be rescued? Israel looks at their captors and says, I don't know if this is possible. But the Lord replies. He assures doubting Israel of the promise. And the Lord draws near to his people and he speaks powerfully to them. Isaiah 49 verse 25, the next verse Isaiah records. For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So Isaiah holds out this distinct hope. The warrior God will return for his people and he will win a decisive victory. He will contend. He will save. And he will put away the oppressors. And this victory will make a great point to the the whole world. The Lord is driving at something. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. We've told this story starting in Genesis and we've traced it to Isaiah. And from this story, we want to ask a couple questions. And this is where we're going to enter into the Gospel of Mark. So the first question is this Where does the Gospel of Mark fit into this story spanning from Genesis 3.15 through the prophet Isaiah? Well, the answer is that Mark has a, a distinctive take on this story of the Old Testament. The portrait of Israel that Mark paints throughout his gospel is that Israel is oppressed, they're troubled, they're even enslaved. And these elements we find in the gospel of Mark find great affinity with the story we just told in the Old Testament. There's great likeness between these two stories. In the Old Testament, we learn that Israel was enslaved by Egypt, and when we left the story in the Old Testament, they were enslaved yet again by the superpowers of the world. But Mark, in his telling of the story of Israel, takes this story to a deeper level. The problem of Israel is not just that they have been taken captive by human captors or that they have to make bricks without straw or that they've been removed from their land, but it's far worse. Israel has been taken captive by Satan himself. The serpent of Genesis 3.15 has gained the upper hand over the people of God. And when we survey, when we read through the Gospel of Mark, we see this point just jumping off of the page. Everywhere you look in Mark, there are demons and unclean spirits. They're in the synagogues where the people of God are to be taught the word of God. They're out, outside the towns. They're in the towns. They're in the wilderness. And we are met with these summary statements. They're peppering us. Chapter 1, verse 32, Mark records, That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And then Mark goes on to describe the general tenor, the general makeup of Jesus' ministry. What was Jesus doing in Galilee? Well, Mark says in chapter 1, verse 39, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and doing what? Casting out demons. We can gather from these statements, and there's going to be more of them as we travel through the book of Mark, because this is a concern for Mark, that demons and unclean spirits are, are not an isolated problem. Rather, it is epidemic within Israel. And Mark is making this point. 
Israel has been taken captive by Satan. Mark tells us that Satan is the tyrant that we read about in the book of Isaiah. And we can broaden out this concern for ourselves this morning and begin to apply it a bit. The point that Mark makes is not only true of Israel, but is true of everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Every child of Adam has the same problem. The story of captivity spans to us today. We can go to the Apostle Paul, and he doesn't sugarcoat our situation in sin. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul has this powerful phrase, this clause in Ephesians chapter 2, following the prince of the power of the air. What Paul is saying is that in sin, outside of Christ, there is a real captivity to Satan. There is real enslavement and bondage. There is real blindness to truth and beauty and goodness. And when we hear Paul's words, he says, following the prince of the power of the air, we often think of the, the ghoulish and the gruesome. And this is true. The things we see on the news are, are all a part of this. But it's also domesticated. It's also normal. A man might provide well for his family, have a nice car, a nice home. He might take his kids to soccer practice, but yet still be in the bondage of Satan. These words of Paul still might be true of him, following the prince of the power of the air. This man is still blind to the truth, incapable of living for righteousness, with no heart to treasure God or the Lord Jesus Christ. It can look rather domesticated and normal. And so this morning, we we find ourselves tied up in this story from Genesis 3.15 through Isaiah into the Gospel of Mark to our present time. And this brings us to our second question. Where does Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fit into this story that we're telling from Genesis 3.15 through Isaiah into the Gospel of Mark to our present time? Where does Jesus fit? And this is where we enter into our text. So in our text, we meet two groups of people, and they're trying to figure out this very question. Where does Jesus fit into this story? These two groups that we meet in our passage, they've either either witnessed Jesus and the mighty things he's done and the things he's said, or they have heard about what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. So as we travel through the Gospel of Mark, we know that Jesus has preached a distinct message about the kingdom of God. And all the more, Jesus' ministry operates with a distinct power. He doesn't teach like the scribes, but he teaches with authority. And we see it demonstrated in his authority over demons and even sickness. With just his word, reality conforms. As we travel on in the book of Mark, he has taken the prerogative of forgiveness as his own. He's not afraid to work or even redefine the nature and the intent of Sabbath. And so we hear the allegation of the first group in verses 20 through 21. Look there with me. Mark records, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he 
so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So here in verses 20 and 21, we meet Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, according to verse 31, are disturbed by the actions and the ministry of Jesus. How does Jesus fit into this story spanning from Genesis to Isaiah? And after watching Jesus and his actions and his deeds and his words, they render their verdict. They say, he is out of his mind. Now, we don't know the intentions of Jesus' family here. Perhaps they're concerned about Jesus' workload. He can't even eat. He can't open He can't openly enter a town. He's constantly teaching and healing. The crowds are bombarding him. And any mother would be concerned about her son. My son's going to die of exhaustion. He's going to go out of his mind. He's going to get burned out. These crowds are going to literally kill him. Or they may simply see the dangerous position that Jesus has put himself in with the religious authorities. Perhaps Jesus' brothers are not pleased with the scrutiny that, that Jesus has brought upon the family because what he's doing in Galilee, what he's saying, what he's preaching. They may simply want to preserve their brother's life. If Jesus continues on this track, he's going to die. And perhaps they just selfishly want to preserve the, the prestige of the family, the honor of the family. But irregardless of their intentions, Jesus' family has not perceived the true identity and mission of Jesus. They don't see Jesus for who he truly is, the Christ, the Son of God. Instead, they allege he's out of his mind. He doesn't fit into the story, his family's saying. He doesn't have a part to play in this story. We then hear the allegation of the second group in verse 22 and in verse 30. Mark records, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. He has an unclean spirit. And so we see in these verses, verse 22 and verse 30, that the news about Jesus is spreading throughout Israel. No longer is Jesus just dealing with the local scribes and teachers of the law, but the learned and prestigious scribes, the the religious leaders from Jerusalem, are now coming down to checking out what Jesus is doing. These men are not coming down to discuss theology with Jesus. They have come to quash the ministry and the reputation of Jesus. And it doesn't take much detective work to to understand the motives of the scribes. They seek to destroy Jesus and his ministry. They want to put an end to it. And so we can ask again, where does Jesus fit into this story spanning from Genesis 3.15 through Isaiah? Well, the scribes witness what Jesus did and they render their verdict. He is possessed by Beelzebul. According to the scribes, Jesus isn't doing the will of God. He isn't advancing the reign of God. He isn't undoing the works of Satan. Rather, Jesus is in league with Satan. Even more, this Jesus is a tool of Satan. His mighty acts, his words, his his deeds are just a big charade intended to lead the people of God astray. And so the scribes, just like Jesus' family, do not get, they do not understand the true identity of Jesus. They don't see him. They don't get him as the Christ, the Son of God. And according to the scribes, Jesus does fit into this story spanning from Genesis 3.15 through Isaiah. And how does he fit into this story? Well, he's the offspring, not of the woman, but of the serpent. So these allegations, they press us with a question. 
And Mark writes his gospel so that we are faced with it. I love how Mark writes. It's so poignant. And he's pushing us with these questions. What is the truth about Jesus? Is this Jesus we meet in these pages just simply out of his mind? Is he overworked, caught up in the excitement of the crowds, and he's now overextending himself, going beyond his limits? Is he in league with the serpent? Or is there something more for us here? And in the Gospel of Mark, it is as if we have been ushered into a great courtroom scene. The prosecution has come, they've made their charges, they've marshaled their witnesses and evidence, and they've passed their judgment. He's out of his mind, he's possessed by Beelzebul. But now the, the other side gets to present their case. And Jesus comes and he defends himself. And Jesus cuts to the heart of these allegations. He answers in verses 23 through 26. Jesus says, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus hears the allegations of these men and he answers them with sound logic. No military general would tell one of his regiments to attack another one of his regiments. That would make no sense. There's no tactical advantage for firing on your own troops. Friendly fire is always bad. Or we can think about it in a different way. No football coach would draw up a play where his running back tackles the quarterback after taking the snap. That would make no sense. That coach would be fired. It doesn't advance the cause of the team. It's not going to help them win. And Jesus is pressing into these scribes. The exorcisms that Jesus has performed throughout his ministry prove a simple point. Jesus and Satan cannot be on the same side. It is not possible. Jesus is pushing hard against the kingdom of Satan. But again, we can ask, where does Jesus fit into this story spanning from Genesis 3.15 through Isaiah? And Jesus drills down farther in verse 27. He says, But no one, can enter in, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And here is the main point of this passage. This is where Jesus is driving. He's revealing himself and his mission. And Jesus' answer is stunning. And we have to go back to the book of Isaiah to grasp the weight of Jesus' words. So we go back to the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah has gone to Israel and he's pronounced the good news. The warrior God is going to come. He's going to fight for you. But what does Israel do? Well, they begin to doubt. How can this be true? Can God really save and Isaiah says, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captive of a tyrant be rescued? But the Lord responds, and we've already heard this response. He comes to doubting Israel and he says, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine then. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. What does the Lord say here in Isaiah chapter 49? He says, I will contend 
I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. I am the Lord. I am your Savior. I am your Redeemer. I am the Mighty One. We flip back to the book of Mark. And what do we see in the book of Mark? We see demons cast out, unclean spirits defeated, Satan silenced and defeated, all at the hands of whom? It's Jesus. And Mark is testifying to us this morning. He's he's drawing out this great point about who Jesus is. All of these events, all of these exorcisms, all of these mighty deeds are revealing the identity and the mission of Jesus. Jesus is the promised one. He is the Lord God. He is the Savior, the Redeemer, and the Mighty One of Jacob. And the intention of the Lord in in Isaiah 49 is coming true. All flesh is beginning to know who the Lord is. The Savior, the Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And Mark faithfully sharpens our understanding of the gospel this morning. And the good news of the gospel is this. The divine warrior has come. The God of the exodus, the God of the conquest, the God who trained David's hands for war has returned. And he has come in the person of his son. And he has come to bind Satan and to plunder his house. And the gospel calls for great joy today. We've been telling the story from Genesis 3.15 through Isaiah. And so we can look back on this story. Though Satan beguiled Eve in the garden, though Satan is the great murderer of mankind, though he rules over humanity and entraps humanity in his kingdom of darkness, though the world lies in the power of the evil one, though we are met daily with Satan's temptations and fiery darts, the divine warrior has come, the divine warrior has conquered, and the divine warrior is still conquering. He's still plundering the house of Satan. So Mark is telling us there is great hope for humanity. We can go back to that man who provides well for his his families, provides a nice home for his family. He takes his kids to soccer practice. He's living the, the normal suburban life. But his problem is this. He has no heart for God. He does not delight in the Son of God. There's good news in this text. The divine warrior has come and he is plundering Satan's house. There's hope for us as we daily meet Satan's temptations. There's hope for our neighbors and our children and our our town. There is a divine warrior and he is plundering Satan's house. He's taking at will what he desires. Martin Luther wrote a hymn called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. I want to draw out two points Luther's making two points in this song. And the first point is that we have a great enemy, a real enemy. And Luther writes about this enemy from firsthand experience. He says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Luther understands the power of the evil one. But he has a second point and a glorious second point. And he points us towards the hope of the gospel and he continues to write. He says, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same. And here's the clincher. And he must win the battle. Luther understood two points about reality. We have a great foe, 
and on earth is not his equal. But the good news of the gospel is that there is a right man on our side, and he will win the battle. When Jesus entered into Galilee, he preached a distinct message. He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And in our text, we begin to taste and see the saving reign of God. Satan is bound. His goods are plundered. Men, women, children are freed from Satan's reign of tyranny. Sinners are brought into the kingdom of God. We have to remember the message that Jesus preached in Galilee. There's two parts to it. Jesus announces news. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. But there's a second part. The so what part. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so we've heard the good news this morning. The divine warrior has come. The one promised in Isaiah 49. And he has come to contend with our enemies. And he will win. But this good news must be met with an appropriate response. And our text this morning helps us respond appropriately. Our text offers a warning and an encouragement. First, there's a warning. And we have to understand that when we hear the gospel preached, we are hearing weighty news. News that is both determinative for this life and for the life to come. And how we answer these questions about Jesus will determine this life and also the life to come. So Jesus' family came to Jesus and they said, He is out of his mind. Jesus' mother and his brothers, they saw the ministry of Jesus. They heard his preaching. And they made a decision about the worth of the identity, the mission, the weight of Jesus. And where did this decision leave them? He is out of his mind. Verse 31. We find for the time being, his family is left outside. The crowds tell Jesus, he's teaching them, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And here's Jesus' brothers. Just think about this. They lived with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They slept and ate with Jesus. They played with Jesus. They worked with Jesus. And here's Mary, the God-bearer. She heard the gracious promises of God. She bore and nurtured Jesus. But they're all standing on the outside looking in. And because of their faith, their lack of faith, Jesus does not acknowledge them as his family. Rather, who does he acknowledge as his family? Look at verse 34. Well, it's a crowd who's surrounded around him, eagerly listening to him. Jesus says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, he is my brother. And the scribes said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And again, the the scribes watched. They witnessed what Jesus said and what he did, and they made a decision about this Jesus They were offended by his preaching. They were offended by his actions and deeds. So what did they do in light of the ministry of Jesus? Well, they slandered Jesus. They blasphemed the kingdom of God. They slandered the Holy Spirit. And they looked at Jesus and what the Spirit of God was empowering Jesus to accomplish and do in Galilee. And they said this, this is the work of Satan. We can go back to the story we're telling, going back to Genesis 3.15. It's as if they're saying, this one here, And the spirit empowering him to do this work is the offspring, not of the woman, but of the serpent. And so Jesus says to these men, these sobering words in verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies 
they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. These men who were trained in the law, these men who were supposed to be the leaders, the shepherds of Israel, excluded themselves forever from the saving reign of God. They forever alienated themselves from the divine warrior. There is no forgiveness. Why is there no forgiveness for these men? They would not listen to the Savior. Even more than this, they called evil the only appointed means of salvation in this world. There's only one saving reign of God. There's only one Son of God. There's only one Spirit working through the Son of God. And if you blaspheme this Son of God and the Spirit working through Him, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness. And these men reviled the grace of God and they called it the work of Satan. So Mark is making this point to us. He's saying this. Take heed. Take heed to how you listen to the gospel. Take heed to how you listen to the gospel. For what you are hearing is determinative for this life and the life to come. How you respond to this gospel is determinative for this life and for the life to come. Jesus' family said he is out of his mind and where did they find themselves? Outside looking in. And the scribe said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And they find themselves forever outside the kingdom of God with no hope of restoration. But there's also encouragement here. Great encouragement. And the reality is that we ourselves have been caught up in the war story that began in Genesis 3.15. And we ourselves, at first-hand experience, know the power of the enemy. How he entraps, how he enslaves souls in sin. We ourselves know the pain of the fiery darts that he shoots at us, the, the doubts. We ourselves have heard his roars as he's this lion seeking to devour souls. And, and Luther understands the nature of the Christian life so well. There is a great war taking place between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And he says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. But there is encouragement in our text that induces faith and repentance, that encourages faith and repentance, and it's this. The divine warrior has come. He has withstood every temptation. He went out into the wilderness for 40 days and stood tall against Satan in the wilderness. He bound him there, and then he definitively bound Satan in his death and resurrection forever, canceling out the power of sin. And the good news, as we see so clearly in the Gospel of Mark, is that the divine warrior is still plundering the house of Satan. He has bound the strong man, and he has entered his house, and he takes whatever he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. And we can say this, every time someone comes to faith, every time we put to death sin, every time a lie is overcome, we see the powerful ministry of the divine warrior at work for us. We have to see that there's precious resources for our faith here. We are in this war. And as we daily meet temptations, and we meet temptations daily, and as we daily face the sinfulness of our own hearts, 
as we are called to keep God's commandments to, to love our neighbors, to love our wives, our children, as we daily face the lies of the evil one, as his fiery darts land upon our chest, as we are tempted to be discouraged and as we're given over to weariness, we know this from the Gospel of Mark. There's someone who has come to fight for us. Luther says, the right man is on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Jesus speaks decisively and powerfully to our often weary souls. He takes the gospel and he pushes it into our hearts. What does he say this morning? He says this from the book of Isaiah. Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. And so Christians, as we face temptation today and tomorrow and the next week, as we face despair, troubled mind, our sins, our enslavements, our addictions, we must take the words of Jesus and apply them to our own hearts because Jesus says, I will contend with those who contend with you. I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. As we wage war against Satan himself in this life, we can take this text to bear, knowing that the right man is on our side. And Jesus assures us today of the gospel. And this is the point we must take and bury deep within our hearts and relish all our days. Jesus comes to us and he says this in our moment of need, our moment of temptation, our moment of despair. He says, I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do rejoice. We have precious, precious good news. The right man is on our side. We have a foe who seeks to do us harm every day, every hour. But we rejoice in the fact that the right man will win the battle. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus stood tall against the serpent in the wilderness and that he definitively bound him in his death and resurrection from the grave. No, Father, we pray, press these truths upon our hearts so that when we fight temptation and when we fight against sin, Jesus' words would come to our aid. I am your Savior. I am your Redeemer. I am the Mighty One. Father, we pray, encourage our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.